I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Okay! Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Hey, Michael. Hey, Katie. Hey, buddy. How's it going? It's good. It's going. I got my little wine and my little um, sippy cup. <laughs> no, it's what's it called? It's called Swig. They oh. don't pay us, so I'm going to stop there. It's fine. It's a fine cup. Um, it was a gift, so I'm a fan. That's exciting. I've got mm-hmm. my new purple water bottle. I will not say the brand, but it's a nice, uh-huh. respected water bottle brand. Yeah. Because my old one after two and a half years of use, it's gotten really gross. Oh, really? It's one of the ones with the straw inside of it. Again, mm-hmm. won't name the brand because they're not an advertiser for the show. But yeah. the like all of the inner connecting parts that let you like sip out of the internal straw have gotten like really crusty and gross, and I tried to clean it, and it did not go well. Have you seen those little tablets you can put in them, and they'll like fizz? I have. I have not tried Something those. Like that. That's fair. But... I also was like, have been going through like a bit of like a let's get plastics out of my life. Ooh! Kick. And so this is a yeah. I've metal become very bottle. aware. I've become very aware of packaging. Mm-hmm. And it's not. It, I don't care for it. Yeah, I went grocery shopping at Trader Joe's for the first time in a couple of months and realized all of their vegetables are packaged in single-use plastic. That's obnoxious. Like I couldn't. Like I want. I just like, want help some us, TJ. We want just things. Yeah. I've I've watched a couple videos about people that try and generate zero waste for like a month. It's a I think it's a good goal. Uh, the thing I want to start doing is that um, at work they recycle, so I want to start taking um, like paper, like all that crappy mail stuff you get that you don't mm-hmm. ever use, or like coupons or old envelopes of mail that comes in. Like I should just collect all that and then take it in like once a week. Yeah, to the people that recycle because my home does not. Oh, no. I know. Bit of a downer. But eventually, I'm sure they will. It's a rural area, so I feel like that's more prevalent in more populated places. True. Could be wrong. Although I... I think it's it's rare in general, but... Yeah, I mean, I was listening to a podcast that says, like, recycling, even if you're getting it collected, might actually not be getting recycled, since China has stopped taking all of our recycling. Oh, really? Yeah, and we apparently, like, don't really have the infrastructure to actually process a lot of it in the u.s well i've had a conversation with a certain person many times it's my dad it's always my dad but uh (laughs) he has a lot of opinions about things but um he he always says like uh recycling will become a thing when somebody can make money at it i feel like that's heading that way i don't think it's quite happened yet but well, I th- Someone needs to be able to profit off of being able to recycle, and that's part of it. It's like it's such a process to sort and m- modify and clean and use, or the reuse part. That it's um, a challenge. Yeah, and I think that's that's the, actually like the central problem is it's not necessarily that like we don't know what to do with it. It's that there mm-hmm. no one in the U.S. wants to buy it. Like China would buy it from us because they could do things with it, but like other than mm. like paper and i think some specific types of like glass and aluminum and plastic like we don't yeah. no one in the u.s wants to buy it and that so it's all just yeah. like sitting there unpurchased 
Unfortunately. So one would say that, you know, there's no profit yet, but some smart entrepreneur person should get on that. Yeah, if you want to figure be out a way to make it profitable. Open what do we all need all the time? I mean, like, I don't know. Or the fact that, I mean, they make biodegradable trash bags now. Mm-hmm. Like, those should be more popular Those than they are right now. And they should also be less expensive than... Yeah, the less Regular expensive part would be nice. Um, That's the annoying thing with all kind of good stuff for you is it's more expensive. Yeah. So then it like... <sighs> it punishes okay. poverty. We could talk about the 1% right now, but I, it's, it's a little late. <laughs> we still have two episodes to record. I don't know if I can get into like full-blown economic drama. Yeah, no, I think we could probably, we could sideline that for just a little bit. Although we were supposed to get into full-blown yeah. dress drama because you were saying that some dress drama would be a nice lead-in for your yeah. woman this week. Yeah, that is true. I had to buy a bridesmaid's dress today, and uh, I'm very happy to be participating in this particular wedding. I love my dear friend who asked me to be in the wedding. Um, I will say buying a bridesmaid's dress is a process, and I um, I am grateful that I am in this wedding, but at the same time, I was frustrated in the moment of like, being, I took my measurements. I know how to take measurements. I wasn't, I, I was honest in my taking measurements. I did not put any frills on it. I was tr- down and dirty. I was doing the thing that they asked me to. And the girl on the phone was like, okay, did you measure yourself or did you have somebody measure? And I was like, okay. I mean, I get that. I get, you want to be, <laughs> you want to protect your business, right? Because there's a lot of stupid Yelp people out there that'll yell yep. and they don't have an accurate interpretation of what happened. In terms of, like, a consumer experience. Um, So I was like, okay, fine. Uh, I took them myself. So there's a little gilding of, like, "Mm, okay, you probably didn't do it right. Which I was like, "Mm, okay, fine. And then, what size do you normally wear? And I told her. Uh, I was like, and I was honest about that as well. And then (laughs) she was like, okay, let me just put these into our little rubric. And we'll come back with what size we think you should get. And it was, like, a good four to six sizes bigger than I said I wear. Which tells me, like, a few things. One, they run very small in their dress shop, which is probably true. Or the places I normally buy things run big, which is also probably true. But I was like, what does this number even mean? Because, like, subconsciously, I'm putting a stupid value on it, which is mm-hmm. idiotic. Like, I'm sure men have with their waistband size. I don't know if that's true or not. But at least that's inches. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, at least, like, you just can't... Women, we have to, like, guide it. We have to put a veil over it to not actually talk about what the size means or who's... Yeah, and everybody has their own opinion on this range of inches equals this size and this range of inches equals this size. And, by the way, your value is based on how many inches are in there. And it's just, like... <laughs> I put a lot on this, on this bridesmaid lady. So I just, I bought the dress size that they suggested. It is the only dress I will have in that size in my <laughs> life. And I will probably have to get it adjusted a hundred percent because it will be too big. Mm-hmm. So, or it'll be, or it'll fit me like a glove and I'll have a lot of feelings about dress sizes again. I don't know. <laughs> it'll be fine. It's going to be a pretty color and I will say it has pockets. So we're winning yes. some battles, everybody. Yes, we're winning pockets. some battles. Not the war, but some stuff. But, like, the whole sizing is just idiotic. It should be inches 
We should really go to a place where we actually buy clothes that are for us rather than, like, off the rack. Or we should just, like, not care about it. That's really the big goal, right? Yeah. The number's arbitrary. It doesn't actually mean anything. And it's not your value. So, buy the dress. No one sees the tag anyway. They don't know. So, (laughs) what's it matter? It's like there's some weird hidden shame of, like, (gasps) I went up a dress size. It's like, yeah, but you look good in the clothes. So... Yeah. No one cares. Like, better to buy the no clothes cares. that fit than like yeah. force yourself into clothes that don't. <laughs> yeah. Me. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's a pretty dress. It'll be good. But the, the whole coming to terms with all of that was a fun <laughs> afternoon. It was fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. And of course, you're coming to terms with it with the woman on the phone from the dress store. <laughs> I know, which it wasn't her fault. She was perfectly lovely, I will say. She was like ready on it you know didn't leave me waiting it was good overall great transaction i just had a lot of feelings about fashion 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 (laughs) fashion for a second so it'll be fine it'll be fine but yeah that has to do with my lady because my lady has to do with fashion so should i start i think you should i mean it's technically your turn to go first anyway oh my gosh look at that segue isn't that weird how we just find those little treats that work for our storytelling it's great and we definitely don't ever rehearse it ever so fashion so fashion do you like ladies fashion uh, is it a topic that you're like bored n- it's not a topic i tolerate or bored with it's something like i'm interested in knowing more about because my knowledge yeah. is very limited i think like having worked in the theater the past couple of years has definitely like expanded my knowledge yeah. beyond what it what it had previously been but it's definitely an area i would say that i have uh underutilized yeah okay cool um so my lady this week is ann lowe uh a-n-n-l-o-w-e and she was born ann cole lowe in clayton alabama which i have to look that up on a map i'm not really sure where it is um in 1898 her grandmother was an enslaved woman who worked as a dressmaker for the family that owned her um, so if you're thinking, uh, late 1880s, these are pretty elaborate garments and created a lot of need for very skilled work to be done, not only to create garments, but also like maintain them, mm-hmm. uh, because women back in those days would have, well, depending on the class and like, uh, wealth of the particular families, um, you'd have a set of dresses. You wouldn't have like as many clothes as we necessarily do now. You'd have like sets of gowns and stuff and you'd have to reuse them quite a bit they had to be pretty sturdy um richer women could probably have more or more delicate things that could you know get maintained by free labor like with slavery which was a crappy time but um her grandmother clearly had immense skill because she taught it to her daughter and then taught it to her granddaughter Anne. um her uh by 1898, obviously, slavery has been abolished. So she's growing up in post uh, or in recon- uh, post Reconstruction times. Yeah, um, but this skill set really allowed Crow for period. yeah, this skill set really allowed for her to maintain a skill and a trade. And there was like this sort of um, that's how the culture uh, stayed in touch with the history of what was going on because like you still had black women making clothes for white women because that structure was in place from slavery. It's maintained into post slavery times. And you, uh, if you were a white person, you could pay 
much cheaper for sometimes better executed things than you would pay a white person because you could abuse the system in that way. Oh, interesting. Because so so unlike in like New York where yeah. this is still kind of like a predominantly white, oddly yeah. like male thing in the South is yes. much more like a black and female yeah. driven industry. Yes, very much so. And there's there's this whole, you know, lifestyle of early 20th century of like couture houses and salons where you would go get your clothes. So like like I was saying, like this off the rack situation of clothing wasn't wasn't a concept yet. That's very much a more modern I mean, I think they say in history classes, like, the first set of modern um, off-the-wrap clothes were actually made for soldiers in the Civil War, where they would make standard sizes of things, because they figured out there was a range of person, mm-hmm. and so they could make 50 of these garments, and it would fit everybody okay. Now, the richer and usually richer, whiter person you were, you would, the more customizable you could get your things, the more, like, you would go to a designer's salon and see the parade of clothes and then pick the ones out that you would like, and then you would get it fitted for you. So then you had a very um, posh wardrobe. Um, But it was a big deal, right? All those customizable clothes and getting the best designers and stuff. But there's still this kind of um, tradition of going to an African-American person and having your clothes made by them. Because that carried through from slavery. So they wouldn't necessarily own the salon, but they would definitely be doing a lot of the labor and a lot of the design and stuff without the accolades that you would get of some of these fancier places. Anyway, that's sort of the world we're growing up in. Okay. Anne Lowe is a particular case. So she learns these uh, talents from her mom and grandmother, and they have a family business of se- seamstresses that she grows up working in. And when she's 16, her mother dies very suddenly and left an order unfinished. And she's like, I'm, and they were for the governor's wife. So they were like a big deal for this business. So she takes over and finishes the order and gets a lot of credit for it. So um, she kind of takes over the family business at a young age. And she clearly has a very good aptitude. And also not even just that, like, I always find it interesting when somebody's like very talented in the thing that is then expected them to do. Like, she had a perfect um, meeting of her talent perfectly matched what her family set her up to achieve. Mm -hmm. Which is, you don't know whether that's nature or nurture, but clearly she was, like, inspired by the work and really enjoyed it. Um, So she makes these gowns for the governor's wife. It's a big deal. This lady in Florida, this rich woman in Florida is like, oh, we got to get you down here and you need to do some stuff. So she takes her baby. Uh, she got married really young, probably a teenage bride. Super fun. Add she leaves him list. and she's like, yeah, I'm go-. She's like, mm, I'm done being married. I want to work. And he's like, I want a wife. And she's like, well, I'm leaving. I'm going to Tampa. So <laughs> she takes her kid. She takes her kid and uh, goes down to um, Florida to uh, work for this woman as a seamstress. A personal seamstress, I think. Um, she excels beautifully. She does really well. Um, let me let's look through my notes. I have them a little out of order. Hold on. Yeah. It was a chance to make all the lovely gowns I'd always dreamed of, is a quote of hers. Um, there's also, like, in this time, she's like, what, 1916-ish, pre-20s. She gets to see this great kind of change in fashion, too, with women's frocks. There's still, like, a lot of... There's a lot of wealth coming in. There's a lot of expense being paid to how we dress. And dresses are changing in a very drastic way. So, like, staying on trend is a huge mm-hmm. achievement because it's so drastic year to year. Um, 
Yeah, and she she excels. She excels down there. She um takes a sabbatical really quick and goes to New York to take a couture course. She um applies via mail, I think, and when she arrives, the head of the school was like, "Oh no, you're black." And she's like, "Well, you admitted me, so get over it." And uh, her white familiar. classmates, yeah, doesn't it? <laughs> Didn't you do that last week? Yep. Um, her white classmates refused to sit in the same room, and she was like, "Fine, I'll just uh, finish twice as fast as y'all and get out of here because you suck." So she did, and she like got her degree in half the time that the white kids did because she had stuff to do. Damn. She goes back to Tampa. She opens up her own shop, and she hires like eighteen other seamstresses, and they proceed to like. Uh, take over the market for all of like fancy dress balls, cotillions, formal affairs going on. She gets in with the big wig. She clearly had friends in high places from when she moved down there. And over 10 years, she accrues like a ton of profit, takes her money and moves to New York in 1927. And so she's like, she's got her, she clearly loves couture fashion. She loves high class exquisite craftsmanship and gowns. That's mm-hmm. definitely where her pull is. And the sad thing about that is like all of these things that she loves to make are clearly for a certain exclusive group of people mm-hmm. that must have been difficult to reconcile with. But she was like, I really want to make beautiful things and these are the people that pay me to do that. So I'm going to do that. Um, there's something like she takes like $20,000 she had saved and moves to New York and settles in Harlem with her son. She takes jobs at first as an in-house person to make clothes personalized for people, but then um, uh, and, and works around town, and uh, she works at Saks Fifth Avenue for a little bit. She makes, um, she goes to, like, the big fashion houses and works as, a, like, a premier seamstress for, like, another person's brand. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of anonymity of... Uh, for the fashion house to be like, we're not going to tell you that a black lady made this. Um, you're going to think it's a Dior or whatever. Uh, Dior didn't hire her. I'm just like picking a name. Mm-hmm. Um, I have another quote from her, which is, I feel so happy when I am making clothes that I could just jump up and down with joy. So she loved what she did, which I appreciate. That's amazing. Um, this costume historian said that she had excellent technique And inside, the dresses are beautifully finished, and her clients realize that they could get the same quality as Dior at a much lower price. So this is the big thing, when she starts to get her own name, is this sort of seedy, racist nonsense comes to play, because she will make the gown that the fashion house will make, but because she's black, she cannot charge the same amount. Now, there's Mm. discrepancy of, like, she didn't charge it because she chose not to, but then there's also, like... She got clients because she was affordable. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there's all this kind of murky nonsense about like, it was a $1,500 dress and she charged 500 for it. But it was the same quality of material and labor. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, but it was, it was valued less. Yeah. And people saw a deal. It was kind of, it's crappy. But... She's still somewhat prosperous. She really takes out, I mean, like, obviously the Great Depression made her take a hit and it was really hard for a while. But the post-war years when people really wanted to get out of austerity and out of um, living meekly, she really got a lot of business. And uh, there was a lot of debutante balls and she found a good 
community of um, socialites to work for. There's a lot of coming outs that she did and all these fancy, fancy pants things. Um, <laughs> like literal fancy pants? Events. Literal fancy pants. They did. Um, by 1950, she had two customers uh, persuade her to open her own salon. And um, she got two white business partners to help her get a space on Madison Avenue. So if you think of, like, 1950s New York, like, that is peak place to be. And she was a black woman with her own salon at that time. So Betty Draper would, like, go to Ann Lowe for a good gown. Um, So her claim, her biggest claim to fame, and when you Google her, this is what comes up, is that in about, oh, crap, when was the year? Uh, (laughs) I didn't put the year because I'm stupid. Okay, so there's this lady called Jacqueline Bouvier. And she's kind of a big deal socialite family. She's going to get married to this guy named John F. Kennedy. It's kind of a big deal. You know, I feel it's, like I've heard of them it's before. It's a kind of like the marriage of the time. And um, her mother, Mrs. Bouvier, is like, oh, we should go get a low dress because she'll do the whole bridal party Um She's made dresses for me before. It'll be great. <clears throat> um, the skirt, I could tell you about this. I mean, it's quite a dress. It's, tell it's, me about uh, the it's dress. the royal wedding of the. T- okay, great. The bridal gown of ivory colored silk taffeta. <laughs> uh, it had a certain kind of neckline. It had a big, crazy skirt. It did. I mean, Jackie later said she felt like she looked like a lampshade, which she's not wrong. <laughs> but at the time. <laughs> It was the height of fashion. Of course. Um, She had a lace veil. She had a tiara in her hair. But, like, um, the the skirt is very much, like, the height of 1950s um, kind of forward fashion. And uh, took a lot of labor. I mean, it took them two months of her seamstresses working on this thing to make it. Like, it was custom. It was beautiful. It was detailed. Uh, She wore little jewelry. It was very much about the dress, Mm -hmm. right? So... Ten days before the wedding. Oh, no. In her shop, there's a flood. And it floods the whole area. Oh, it ruins. No. It ruins nine of the bridal party dresses and the bridal gown that they had just spent two months slaving <sighs> over. And she's like, this is the end of me. If I ruin this wedding. I mean, they're not. He's not president yet. But, like, this is a big client. Right? Yeah. And she's like, what do I do? Um, So she and her entire staff work all day for eight full days. The original time was like eight weeks. They do eight weeks of work at eight days and reconstruct the grounds and deliver them on time. That is like a biblical level of ridiculousness. And the amazing thing, I mean, the crappy thing is like she was supposed to make $700 off of the whole thing by the end of it. And she lost $2,200 because she couldn't face the fact of, like, losing that kind of client. So she gets in the red on that. But it is, like, it gets the effect she wanted, which is that everybody talks about it. It's a huge big deal. And it's, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a dress talked about. It's, it's talked about now. Um, she just swallowed all the money and that so she lost. It, it was pretty tragic. At the time, were those conversations about the dress, was there anything about, like, this is a black woman making 
these amazing clothes or was that not really part of the conversation at the time it was not part of the conversation and even later jackie is asked about her um who made her gown and she said a color woman made it so she didn't even say her name which is kind of shitty um, yeah a little bit yeah yeah it's super which would have actually probably made up for the 2200 dollars if jacqueline kennedy was like and low makes it and she's on madison avenue um which you know next time anybody's like crapping on somebody at an awards ceremony by like who's name dropping who gave them their gown it's like well it could make or break this designer's you know career if michelle obama says so-and-so made my gown and he's fabulous you know yeah they they now have careers because of certain clients like this so say what you will about fashion um it did not help Anlo that they did not use her name. You know what I mean? That coupled with the fact that she worked, she did it twice and uh, took a hit financially. Yeah. Um, she Well, to her credit, though, I mean, let's show some integrity. She didn't actually, or I don't know, say what you will about this. She never told the Bouviers about the flood. Oh, interesting. Because there's also like, a, you know, there's a lot at play there. So, you know, it's not their fault that they didn't know, but at the same time, it is their fault that they didn't even say her name. Mm-hmm. You know, they relegated it to a nameless person, which is kind of... And they used the word colored, which I don't care for. Um, She hand-delivered... Uh, the other anecdote I like about that story is she hand-delivered the dress. Because I <laughs> can you imagine? Like, she's just spent eight days, just like her her hands are bleeding, and she shows up, and she's like okay, I'm delivering this dress to the bride. And this, the stupid um, guards at the door who were, like, watching that people don't come in, they are like, you need to use the service door because you're black. And she was like, if I have to use the back door, they're not going to have this dress, so you need to let me in. And they were like, oh, okay. Yes. And they let her in. <laughs> She's like, no one is getting me between me and this dress again. I've just made it twice. Um, she does pretty good with the, you know, she gets some clients because of this kind of word of mouth. It wasn't as pronounced as it should have been, probably, but mm-hmm. um, she does have some financial pro- You can clearly says, see she has the talent and the skill of a dressmaker, but she doesn't necessarily have the business acumen. So she takes on really lavish projects and then maybe doesn't, she, you know, because of the time and place and her... Uh, youth when she started she doesn't have the kind of um business acumen to navigate you know having those kind of difficult conversations where you charge more yeah you know also like how much do you feel like you can and her son sort of takes over her books and tries to help keep her solvent and afloat and stuff um he unfortunately passes away in 1958 and so she continues to kind of struggle with her financial aspect um she had to close her salon in 1962 and took a job as an in-house dressmaker. She quits that and then she gets glaucoma. So she starts to lose her eye sight, oh, no. which is like crazy. So she learns how to sew blind and continues to make clothes. What? It's, yeah, it's crazy. She um, has some issues with taxes. She has, she owes like $1,300, uh, no, sorry, $13,000 in back taxes at one point. And then, an, uh, this is the part of the movie that I really want to see. An anonymous friend pays her back taxes to the IRS. We don't know who that is. Somebody says of Jacqueline Kennedy, and I was like, okay, I mean, 
that's who we want it to be because we want her to get redeemed for being like kind of negligent earlier in her life. But at the same time, like it could have been like some nice lady that, you know, that governor's wife or I don't know, the some nice cotillion. Yeah, some nice cotillion girl that like made it good and was like, that lady always made me look really good. Um, So she was able to reopen her business and it was still bustling and she's in the 60s now. She's, you know. She's doing debutant gowns and wedding dresses and stuff. And she said that she, yeah, because she lost her eyesight, she had to work by feel. But people will tell me I've done better feeling than others do seeing. <laughs> yes. So, so clearly she was aware of her own skill. That's also, um, it's kind of mind blowing that she has a, like a solid career from like the 19 teens, 1920s. Yeah. Through there's the a lot 60s. of fashion changes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, in the late 40s, she makes some of, like, the peak dresses or all of these kind of debutante balls, the Jacqueline Kennedy dress, and then she also made this dress for Olivia de Havilland Mm. for an Oscar ceremony that she wore when she won, which is, like, what you want when you're a designer. You don't necessarily want to just dress the nominee, you want to dress the winner, because then they get all the more pictures. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's another really famous dress of hers that is on Olivia de Havilland. It's really beautiful. Um... Yeah, she's, you know, she's right. She gets in good with a lot of other designers and she works with them in their kind of more established houses and stuff. And there's clearly like a reputation in the fashion community for her and a respect for her skill. Um, her, she trained a lot of assistants at her salons and stuff. So like she passed on a lot of these skills, which is pretty beautiful. And she was clearly like revered at the time, even though it was definitely behind the scenes. I don't Mm -hmm. think she ever, like, they're the main article, a lot of these places that I read stuff was this one article from Ebony Magazine in 1966 that talked about her. So, it, low profile while still being really prolific, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, At one point, she she helped make uh, this fashion exhibit of first lady gowns. So my understanding, I didn't read a ton about it because it kind of creeped me out. My understanding is like the display was sort of slightly miniature dolls that then had recreations of famous first lady gowns, including like Lady Bird Johnson um, all the way back to, I think it was mainly 20th century. So she made these like miniature size, not tiny, but like smaller sized, really exquisitely done gowns for that as well. Um, yeah, I could see why that tying might be into a the first lady creepy. thing again. It was a little weird, but it was, she got a lot of cred for it. Um, and they think she might have done more than what they eventually said she did. They said that she only did two, but it looks like the people that have studied it are like these are too good for her to have not done them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're too skilled. Um, <laughs> she retired at age seventy one in nineteen sixty nine. And she had, like, a really close relationship with this woman named Ruth, who she called her or, uh, her so-called adopted daughter, um, and kind of lived with her for the remainder of her life. And she, her, uh, three of her gowns are on display at um, the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C. right now. And the Museum of Fashion, in- oh, I'm sorry, the Museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology um, has displayed some of her gowns in an exhibition on black fashion. Um, and there's also, uh, in our, they might be out right now. I'm not sure. There's, um, some children's books about her teaching about her, um, 
career as a fashion designer. She's she's cool. pretty remarkable because she... I don't know. I wanted to do Edith Head for a while, which maybe I will later, um, who's this kind of crazy prolific movie costume designer and is kind of infamous in her own style. Like, she's the reason why you remember certain outfits from certain movies because it was her hand on it. Mm -hmm. And this lady definitely reminded me of her. And the fact that she's clearly very revered in the fashion community and did as much for like mid-century style as a lot of other designers did, but had like the tactical, practical skill of doing it. Like she didn't just make, I mean, this is me judging a lot of fashion people. Like she didn't just draw it up. Like she couldn't make it. Mm -hmm. She could style it. She could fit it. And she did it for a cheaper price, which I'm, you know, I'm a bargain hunter, but um, (laughs) yeah. And I also like, I never did a cotillion, but like some of those gowns take some work. I mean, we're talking like hoop, skirty, taffeta, there's a lot going on. So, and low. Very you go, cool. girl. Yeah, right? That's pretty fun, huh? Yeah, I learned so much. So let's go back to that style of, like, you go in and they fit it to you and we can just go away with dress sizes. That sounds like the perfect solution. But also make it super affordable. Yeah, I think that's probably that possible? the problem you're going to run into right there. That's not possible? Can't, can't do all that? Try and remember the triangle. It's like you can get things fast, you can get them cheap, or you can get them well done, and you can't get all three of those things so you're either like waiting a couple of months for your clothes yeah or like that's hard yeah but we'll work on it yeah maybe comfortable needs to be a part of that too comfortable in pockets because i doubt a lot of these clothes are comfortable oh god no can you imagine no a lot of taffeta a lot of scratching Ooh, yeah, I don't know. No, the whole you. time I was reading about her, I was just like, oh, my God, this lady dressed Betty Draper. Like, she's in Manhattan. She's on Madison Avenue. Like, she, yeah, pick a Betty Draper outfit. Like, it was probably Enlo making it, which I think yeah. is just so, in- you don't think about that part of it. There's no, not at all. Anyway, Enlo, I like her. Go check her stuff out. I always like looking at historical dresses. There's um. I would like to go to those museums that I mentioned because I like seeing. I think seeing what people used to wear is a really interesting way of like getting to know them. So like seeing a dress from Marie Antoinette tells you so much about her warped view of life or any kind of royal member. Like when you see what they wear, you're like, wow, yeah, you're not from this planet. Like who has time to wear all these bows at once, you know? <laughs> and so when you know that, then you know a little bit about the person because you also see what they value. You see how yeah. they want to present themselves. It tells you so much about who they are. Anyway, that was a tirade. Um, great, your turn. Cool. Do we want to take a quick break? Yeah, we're going to take a break. I now know a lot more about fashion history than I did 20 minutes ago, but... Yeah, there's a really good Tumblr. I can't remember what it's called. It's like, oh my god, that dress or something. Mm -hmm. And they do a lot of photos from museum exhibits. So they'll do like frock coats circa 1776, you know. So you can see like, maybe John Adams was wearing that at one point. Mm -hmm. Or would he wear that? Or would George Washington wear that? Because George Washington was a slave owner and had a little more time for clothes because he didn't actually have to work at anything. Right. Sorry. Right, right. That's a little bit of a. I sorry. mean, no, but that's I mean, um, that's exactly the thing. It's like what 
what does the clothes tell you about the culture? And that's definitely something. It is kind of interesting that we're supposed to, I feel like as a country, we have a dissonance between like, oh, it's President's Day. Yay. Because it's what, Lincoln and George Washington? I think so. I can't remember exactly how Around the same time. Oh, yay, it's President's Day. Yay. Also, it's Black History Month, and one of those guys owned a lot of people. (laughs) And we're just going to glaze over that. But we like him and the cherry tree, which is apocryphal, not true, but like, meh. I wonder if it started as like George Washington Day, and then he became more problematic. And then they had Lincoln do some really good stuff. So they're like, oh, put him in it. Okay, great. Now we're fine. And then, yeah, it's still, it's a little, I don't know, it's a little two-headed. It's like America. Yeah, I think it's, it's like bo- uh, both exist simultaneously and we are all struggling at all every time. Yeah. All the time with that. I think that is a great way to frame President's Day. Thank you. It's weird. Let's just have Indigenous People Day and get rid of Columbus Day. We can all agree on that one, right? We can. Although, and I think you, you posted the thing about the town in Ohio that yeah. is making, um, they're taking, yeah. they're getting rid of Columbus Day as a holiday and making Election Day as a holiday. Yeah, we crazy. should do that. That would be good. Yeah, either or. I'll take any of that. I would like an election day holiday. I think that's good for everybody. I think so. And then maybe it can stop being on a stupid Tuesday, because that doesn't make sense, unless you're a rich person that can take off Tuesdays. Yeah. No, I've Um, I've never had a Tuesday off in my life. No, because it's weird. Yeah. Hmm. It's almost like whoever said it should be on a Tuesday didn't want people who work all the time to be able to vote or something. Do you think that was something? I think my so my understanding is that it has to do with travel time post Sunday, back when we used horses, but we don't use horses anymore. Yeah, that doesn't add up, does it? No, we stopped using horses a while ago. We don't have to ride. Well, I, like don't 80 miles I don't know. I don't know. Did you somewhere. see the Secretary of the Interior? He rode up on a horse. <laughs> That's and then true. Uh, a dear old friend, Roy Moore, came to the polling place in a horse. It's apparently a political tool now. Yeah. If I own a horse and show up at my job at it, you're going to take me as a folksy American hero. Exactly, because every folksy American rides their horse to work. And horses aren't, yeah. in fact, actually incredibly expensive to maintain and a sign of class privilege for the most part. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, do you want to talk about <laughs> racism in medicine, Katie? Oh, um, I mean, can we do it in an upbeat way? Challenge? We can. Challenge you? I will try to be as upbeat as humanly possible. Me too. Hey, it's better now, right? A little bit? Uh, incrementally? We'll see the- probably not for everyone. No, I'm sorry. It's probably not. I'm sorry, everyone. Yeah. You've had a shitty doctor experience, I'm sure. Yeah, no, the uh, uh, bullet point 1C for me is, guess what? It's not better. Mm-hmm. Um. But oh hey, we are not doctors nor claim to be, and don't uh, have any authority to promote medical advice in any way. But um, vaccines are great, and we will not tolerate any other opinions. Yes. Okay, I'm done. Great. Measles are the devil. Get vaccinated. Okay. What? <laughs> great. So racism. Racism in medicine. Medicine. Um. So I want to talk about Jean Spurlock this week. Um, okay, she, I know this name, and I don't know why. Um, she is a pretty big deal in the psychiatric world, um, and she writes this sort of groundbreaking book in the 90s about um, healthcare, um, specifically like mental healthcare for African Americans, both from a perspective of like the impact that 
discrimination has on like mental and physical health, but also on like what it's like to be a black healthcare provider. Mm. Um, so that's sort of like her big thing. Um, but she gets on that track because unsurprisingly, as a young woman of color in the twenties, she has a not so great experience with the healthcare system. Where was she in the 20s? She's in Sandusky, Ohio. Oh, that was the place, I think. I think that's the the Columbus Day place. Isn't that the town that we just talked about? I think so. Oh my god, get out of They're, here, Ohio. Look, come on. What are all these little Easter egg connections we're having today? I don't know, anyway. but it's so okay. great. Um, so she's born in July 1921 in Sandusky, Ohio. She's the oldest of seven kids. Mm. Um, and at age nine, she breaks her leg gets taken to the hospital for treatment. Um, well, there, she doesn't have the great greatest time. Uh, leg like broke. Like femur or like lower leg? Doesn't say. It, it's interesting. In all of the things I was reading about this, the information about the incident is all really vague. Like, it never actually says, like, what happened at the hospital. It just said, like, she felt mistreated and ignored by the medical staff there. Um, but, again young woman of color in 1930 i don't think it's like a stretch of the imagination to figure out like what her experience was probably like at this hospital um well have you read the stories about women's pain and the medical field uh, like now i that might be bullet point one c3 okay i'm gonna let you keep talking (laughs) sorry um no i think that's a that's like a great that's a great jumping in because the I basically want to use this as a moment to be like, so, like, we shouldn't be surprised, but people of color still get less good treatment in the American healthcare system today mm-hmm. compared to mm-hmm. white people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it was really interesting in sort of reading that there's, a again, unsurprisingly, like, really long history of not great relationships between predominantly white healthcare providers and communities of color um Mm. and like some of the the big examples that stand out um are it's uh j marion sims who's sort of considered the pioneer of obstetrics and gynecology in the united states um did most of his research on enslaved women without their permission and without anesthesia oh this guy that guy yeah um and like he's the reason we have speculums isn't he he is indeed yeah, so he's not really he's everyone's my favorite, favorite person, person anyway. So yeah, um, he's pretty awful. Yeah, and then there's the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. In oh the God, 30s. Michael! God. I'm, pro- I'm sorry. I it promise it gets better, but we just have to start Ugh. here because the history is awful. Um, yeah. Okay. And for those of people who don't know, that's this experiment that the U.S. Public Health Service, so the federal government runs starting in the 30s they recruit a couple hundred black men um some of whom have syphilis some of whom don't to study the impacts of syphilis um hey guess what the impact's not good it's really bad who'd have thought um also didn't they not tell them so then they would spread it to their partners they didn't tell without them. their no without their knowledge yeah so that they're just spreading venereal disease mm-hmm. without so they didn't tell them um and they knew also like 
it, I'm sorry. And then they fi- syphilis wasn't new, no. So like you knew it was bad, and it's so been you around. You're giving people terrible things mm-hmm. that would cause like brain damage, yep. and like also if you got the person, the if the men got the women pregnant, then their babies were exposed. Like it was prolifically bad. Yeah, it's awful and negligent. And then guess what? In the 40s, we figure out that penicillin is a really effective treatment for syphilis, but wait, the doctors running the study have decided both to extend the study so it was originally supposed to be like six months we're now in the second decade of it um but even though the treatment is discovered they don't give it to the patients they don't tell them that that's what they're suffering from and so we're that's great it's great and they go out of their way to prevent local doctors from treating them so they're not only like... What was the logic behind that? Because it would ruin the validity of the study. Okay. Because that's more important than people's <gasps> lives. Oh, um, you're doing science wrong. Yes. How about that? How about there's not one There's not one way to do things? And maybe like taking care of people is your job as doctors. Literally anyway, the first thing. Um, so that gets uncovered in the 70s. So f- 40 years this goes on. Um, and people... Unexpectedly, it's the telling number, isn't it? Yeah, really upset about it. Um, and this moment is sort of held up as this moment where, like, the relationship between mainstream, predominantly white medical profession and the African American community in the United States, that relationship goes from being not great to awful, because they are like, "Oh, cool, you guys thought this was okay. We're not okay with that." Well, and there's, like, I mean, there are studies now about, like, um, heart disease being a leading cause of death in those communities and the the lack of medical care that those people seek. Mm -hmm. And you can tell, like, if you look at it through a historical lens, like, yeah, why would they trust any medical professional? So there's always this flack from doctors being like, well, you guys don't, I mean, like... We, we don't have the numbers and like clearly this is a this is a medical problem of, like heart disease in this community and it was like yeah who would trust you guys yeah you know like it's not one-sided exactly it's not a one-sided thing they learn something from their parents who learned something from their parents who you gave syphilis to <laughs> like why would they trust you and then you help you withheld the cure and yes you didn't do it but at the same time be sensitive to the stupid I like ugh. yeah uh, you dummies. Um, so all of which is to say, sorry, yeah. not unexpected that there's going to be this not great relationship. But yeah. Jean is taking this experience and she looks at it and she's like, okay, well, the thing I can do about this is that I can become a doctor and that I can work on giving my community the treatment it deserves. That is a productive solution to the problem. Mm-hmm. Way to go, Jean. Um, so again, just so we're all keeping this in mind, she's a black woman in the 40s who wants to become a doctor. So that's going to be so an easy, easy street. like super smooth sailing. It's like a flat lane in Florida. Like it's just smooth sailing to the beach, right? Exactly. Just, just shoot on down. All right, cool. Um, so she is going to enroll at Spelman College in Atlanta, which is the oldest um historically black college for women um even though she works full-time and gets some scholarship funding she ultimately can't afford tuition for her second year and has to leave so she moves to chicago 
and finishes her undergraduate studies at Roosevelt University. Um, she then gets accepted into Howard University's College of Medicine, and she's going to graduate with her MD in 1947. Cool. So, like, works through it, gets it, and then after graduating, makes the decision to go back to Chicago, and she does her internship at Provident Hospital, which is the first African-American-owned and operated hospital in the country. It's founded in 1891, um, and it's whole mission is to provide quality health care to African-American patients, but then also to train black medical professionals. Um, and so like of all of the places to like go do your internship as a black woman in the forties, like this is the place, um, which is going to bring me to my second sidebar. And I'm sorry, but I'm also not sorry. Cause this is something I found really interesting. Um, so the fact that there is this need for, like, an African-American-owned and operated hospital in Chicago in the late 19th, early 20th century is obviously the result of discrimination because white hospitals won't serve black patients in most cases. Um, and you see this sort of in a lot of different communities in the United States developing their own healthcare system because the mainstream white Protestant healthcare system won't let their community members in. So it's why you get like Jewish hospitals, Catholic hospitals, African-American hospitals, Chinese hospitals, sort of this whole swath of community-based health systems develop in response to this discrimination. Um, what a mess. Mm -hmm. Then the like deeply ironic thing is there's a lot of research showing that like culturally competent healthcare is a really important part of keeping people healthy. So it's not just that like you're technically qualified, it's that you have an understanding of the culture and the like cultural background of the community that you're serving will like help make you a better healthcare provider. But mm. the, like are you saying empathy with your patients might help you in your caregiving it's almost like i'm saying something like that and it's not just oh. me but it's also like a lot of research mm, radical empathy <laughs> mm. we would know something about that maybe yeah people are really good at it that's what i know um but the ironic thing is so similar to what happens after brown versus board of education wherein black students get shipped to the white school system and then the black school systems get shut down. A sort of similar thing happens in the medical community where as discrimination lessens, it's the white healthcare system that ends up sort of predominating. And so you lose a lot of the cultural competencies. And so even though maybe the like technical quality of the care is better, you're losing a lot of the cultural knowledge that is then having to sort of be relearned by the white healthcare system. Mm. Um, so there's sort of this, Which like, I bet they were great at doing, you know, I think you're, cause everybody embraces change wholeheartedly and with openness. Yeah. Especially white people. We're really <laughs> yeah, good at that. <laughs> we're so good at it. We wrote some books about it. I'm sure. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> we're also probably really good at telling other people when they're not good at it. Yeah. I think full of irony and, <laughs> non-self-aware yep 
Cool. Okay. Cool. Moving on. Um, so she's in Chicago in the 40s working as a doctor um, and decides that psychiatry is really the thing she wants to pursue. Um, Twist. Mental health care is just sort of developing into a thing at this period. It, yeah. Like, obviously comes out of the Freudian and Jungian traditions um, out of Europe. Um, Good name drops there. Thank you. Um, Anytime Jungian is thrown into a conversation... <laughs> Uh, yeah. Don't ask me to talk about the difference because I can't, but I know there they is They were buddies. One. There's not much. One, um, they were both weird German dudes. That's racist. I don't know what they were. European? I think, that, I I think they're Austrian, but okay. that's about as much as I know. Um, cool. So she is going to finish her training at Provident and then starts a fellowship at the Institute for Juvenile Research where she starts studying child psychology. At the same time, she is a resident at the Cook County Hospital, and she's working at the Mental Hygiene Clinic at the Women's and Children's Hospital in Chicago, and she's working at the Illinois School for the Deaf. The Mental Hygiene Clinic? I think that's a term for, like, mental health. It seems yeah. like a very, like, 40s, 50s way of talking about yeah. it. Um, All right. But so basically she's, like, working four jobs, and, like, one of uh-huh. those is, like, a... She's like a student and she's working. And in 1953, not only is she interested in like psychology and psychiatry, but becomes uh-huh. interested in psychoanalysis, which is the like very Freudian end of things. Um, and oh, so Sigmund. starts training in that. And so by 1960, in addition to being a professor at the Illinois College of Medicine and having her private practice, and holding these other jobs. She is also the chief of psychoanalysis at Michael Reese Hospital. That's impressive. So she's busy. <laughs> she's real busy. Um, uh-huh. And again, and I don't think I can emphasize this enough, she's a black woman in the 50s doing yeah. all of this. Yeah. And doing it at, like, the highest levels. Yeah. Which is just, like, stunningly impressive. Tends to be a theme we have on this show, too. It does. And we could talk, if we want, about, like, the ethics of, like, holding up exemplary women who are, like, following in the model of, like, the great white man version. I was just listening to a, yeah. a podcast about this. But I think, like, that might be a discussion for, like, an episode unto itself. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. We can tuck that away. Yeah. Um, okay. So the year's 1968. A lot is happening. Big year. In 1968. Oh, a terrible year. Yeah. Um... And so... So many people died. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. And so Sorry. she... Downer! <laughs> I promise this does get positive soon. She's doing great! She is doing she's great. She's excelling in her field, and she's she's clearly seeing a need for, like, the weakest and most vulnerable people around us in, like, kids' psychology. Like, there was a time in this world where we didn't care <laughs> about children that I'm, you know, I'm pretty proud that we now do. Yeah. <laughs> Not always, but we do. Um, We're moving in the right care direction. More than we used to. Here's hoping. I mean, some people don't care about kids um, in a way that I'm satisfied with. Anyway, I just really want to yell about Donald Trump. Can you tell okay. <laughs> um, uh, But a lot of other people have a little more caring for... Exactly. Um, so she... The future. In 1968, um, and actually sort of throughout the 60s, um, is making re- regular trips to Mississippi to provide medical care for civil rights activists working in the state. Cool. Um, so not a targeted move at all. That's mm-hmm. 
daring just you know and hard casual yeah. um and she's also doing that similar kind of work in chicago when she's there um, yeah. but in 1968, she's going to take a job as the chair of psychiatry at, um, Maybury Medical College in Nashville, which is the, um, it's founded as the first medical school for African Americans in the country. Okay. Okay. So it's still, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, had she worked in the South until this point? Or other than her work, Chicago, New York stuff. Yeah, other than her work in Mississippi, this is her first time like and she's living and working full time in the South. From Ohio, that's a. I mean, it's not great anywhere at this time, but like, definitely the farther south you go, it's not. It's a different world, and to be someone. Yeah. Yeah. Of prominence, not not great, not easy. No, definitely not easy. Um, Mm -hmm. And so she'll be there for six years. And then in 1974, she's going to get appointed as the deputy medical director and the director for minority and national affairs for the American Psychiatric Association. Um, Wow. So that, and that's sort of, that is like the national body for psychiatrists in the United States. Yeah. So it's a pretty big deal, like professionally. Um, She's going to be a really strong advocate for mental health needs for underserved children, for women, for families, um, and obviously communities of color. I mean, that's huge. In the 60s, I wouldn't think that would be... Yeah. I mean, so it this still is like, feels like mid, taboo now. Yeah, it's like mid-70s, mid so it's like just barely the beginnings of like having an awareness that like mental health is an important part of public health and it's something that we should be concerned about. Like, not yeah. just with our doctors, but on a national level. Um, yeah. And so she's going to sort of be, in many ways, she's at the forefront of that kind of advocacy. Um, yeah. Wow. And okay. of course. Be- Especially with children. I mean, like, like I said, like, yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, okay. And so in addition to that, which is a pretty full-time job in and of itself, she's also going to be teaching both at George Washington University and at Howard University in D.C. And running her own private practice. So busy bee. So again, four jobs. Which, like, is a theme. She reminds me of Virginia Apgar, who was, like, just nonstop. Yeah. I think you kind of have to be if you're pursuing this kind of career at that point in history. Yeah. Well, you're clearly fulfilled by your work, you know? Yeah. Your work and your passion are the same as your purpose. Like, that's got to feel good. It must. Um, She's going to retire in 1991. um, And all she's going to do after she retires is continue to teach at George Washington and at Howard. um, And is going to write two pretty major books. Um, One of them, which is the one I mentioned right at the beginning, is called Black Psychiatrists and American Psychiatry. Uh, which is this really cool mix of like history and memoir and analysis. So she's looking sort of at the history of psychiatry in the United States and specifically at the contributions of black psychiatrists. She's reflecting on her own life and work and sort of her place in the field um, and is looking at mental health issues facing both African-Americans generally and then specifically like black doctors working in the field. Um, hmm. So it's this really fascinating book um, where she's sort of trying to tie all of these things together in a way that I found really cool because there, I think, is often, especially in, like, academic writing, this divide of, like, 
I'm analyzing something, it is like objective, and then like maybe I'll write a memoir. But this is her tying those things together because she obviously lived this experience that she's writing about, but she's also drawing on data and research to sort of help identify issues mm-hmm. more broadly. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, um, she's sort of one of the major voices in looking at the impact that discrimination has on mental and physical health. Um, and a lot of the stuff that she writes in the 90s relates to that. Um, in her copious amounts of spare time, she is going to serve on the national boards of the American Women's Medical Association, the Black Psychiatrists of America, the Urban League, the Carnegie Corporation, Physicians for Human Rights, and the Delta Adult Literacy Council. So, like, I'm sure she slept at some point, but I don't know when. Like, did you go to a movie ever? Like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sure she did at some point. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And she gets, like, so many awards, which is the technical term that I've come up because as I was sort of reading through her official biographies, it's like there are so many to list. One of them is she gets, like, the Woman of the Year Award. Mm. So, like, again, busy, doing a lot of good work, and, like, getting recognized for it. Um, She's going to pass away in November of 1999. Uh, But I think the, like, coolest thing about the way that people decided to sort of instill her legacy um, is there's a number of fellowships in her honor. Um, Oh, cool. So there's the Gene Spurlock Minority Medical Student Clinical Fellowship in Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. I think that title pretty much explains to you what that is. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the Gene Spurlock Research Fellowship in Drug Abuse and Addiction. Also pretty self-explanatory. And then there's the Gene Spurlock Congressional Fellowship, which is the thing that I think is probably the coolest, um, which funds an early career psychiatrist to spend a year working in a congressional office in D.C., so developing mm-hmm. relationships with lawmakers and staff, learning how the legislative process works, but then also being an advocate for healthcare policies for underserved populations. So like very directly mm-hmm. continuing her legacy of advocacy and political work tied to mental health. That's wild. Yeah. So I just, I really enjoyed getting to learn more about her because she's this incredible woman, but at the same time, is just like pursuing her career and the things that she's passionate about and that she thinks is important. And is like doing that in sort of the way, in a way that feels achievable, like in no way am I ever going to do that, but like dedicates herself to her career, like pursues excellence in the professional body she's a member of and like uses her expertise to advocate for people. I think that's just like an amazing For disenfranchised people. Yeah. That wouldn't have a voice otherwise. Like, mental health is such a, even a new concept for now. Like, to tackle it before, I mean, it's not normalized now in any way, and people still have a lot of stigma about it, but at the same time, even like 40 years ago, it would be so hard. I mean, there's just so many misconceptions, and like, also poor training that clearly she was trying to get ahead of. Like, clearly she saw some issues with the way it was being handled at the time. Yeah. I mean, thank God, you know. 
Cool. I like that a lot of fellowships are named for her. Yeah, me I feel too. Like that's a good legacy to have. Yeah. Not buildings and not like. Not even like a, a awards know. necessarily. Although I think there is an award named after her too. Um, but this thing of like committing to helping other people keep doing the yeah. important work is really great. Yeah. I hope when I die, someone names a fellowship after me. Aww. I can't imagine what it would be. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that. That makes me sad. Uh, I will. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's Jean Spurlock. That's cool. I like Jean. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome, Katie. Okay, bye. <laughs> bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.